Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. Today, we will be discussing humans and the human experience, and I'm delighted to welcome John Sills. John, welcome to the show. Hey, Susie, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, John, you're actually the author of a book called The Human Experience, so we'll come to that. But you're also a partner in the foundation where you help organizations make things better for customers, let's just say it like that, and achieve sort of customer-led success. And easy to say, but hard to do, and is based around essentially humans. But you're also a natural storyteller, uh, which we'll come to when we uh, when we come to your book. But you've been in lots of frontline teams yourself, and you're also passionate about fostering the human element of that process for customers, but not only customers, but also creating that mindset. So in organisations, but not only. And I know you also work with children and and youth work, looking around how they can actively uh, develop this mindset and how we can work in those sectors as well. So. That sounds to me like fun. It also sounds like honesty and more important, experience-led designs, but also sharing lived experiences about collaborating with other humans. So let's come back to storytelling in your book. You can tell right from your first sentence that you're a storyteller. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and what led to you putting pen to paper during lockdown? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a fantastic intro as well. I want to put a lot of pressure now. No pressure. No pressure. Try and live up for it. Yeah, I guess I guess there's kind of two elements to the story, Willie. I suppose there's my actual story in terms of the the career. And I, you know, I, I started out on a market stall in Essex in England mm. when I was 14, selling haberdashery and having no idea what I was doing. But actually, the first few years of my career, that first decade, was all about working in the front line. Mm. Uh, you know, I was running bank branches, working in shops like a lot of people do on the market still. And you just learn so much from the people that you meet and the situations that you find yourself in. Most of those yeah. situations are utterly ridiculous uh, and you can't process, process map them. You can't really predict them. <laughs> but it's brilliant for helping you kind of learn resilience. But also as you get into kind of head office and strategy work, mm. it's brilliant for helping to tie you down to reality. And, mm. you know, I've still got people that used to come into my branch that I think about and think, well, what would they think about this? Because they would just tell it to me straight exactly <laughs> what it what it was like. And so, so I suppose that's that's the career part of how I've kind of ended up working in this in this world, firstly in, in HSBC and then now as a, as a consultant for the foundation. Mm. Then with the actual book itself, I mean, that started on a, on a train a few years ago, you know, on a holiday rolling through the uh, English countryside on an old steam train, having a day out on this steam train and had like beautiful big leather seats and a nice oak panelled table and really nice food being handed out. Mm. And my son said to me, Daddy, is this what it's like when you get the train into London every day? Uh, <laughs> and I just kind of laughed and was like, no, it's it's not. It's completely different. And I thought, well, that's interesting that that we end up kind of, uh, you know, making things faster and more efficient, but somehow mm. the qualities qualities got worse. So all of these things came together and, mm. you know, having written, written over a few years, I thought, yeah, it's time to probably write a book. And that was kind of the spark and the catalyst mm. around that part of it. Well, I'm glad you did because it's a great book. And kids Thank are great you. for that, though, aren't they? They bring this sort of more innocent, creative lens to, but why is it not like that? Or is it like that? Or should it be like that? And, yeah, and I think yeah. that brings us to, you know, one of your first sentences, which is you are everyone you've ever met. And I love that. I love that because it's inclusive and I love that because it's eclectic and it's about 
really understanding the lived experiences of everyone, which is what you're saying. And you still remember people. It's like, I wonder what he or she will, they would think of this. And I wonder what lens they would put on this for me. And it brings me to, in your book, you say, you know, the emotional experience, which is essentially what we're remembering here, is just as important, if not more so, than the functional one. And I love the fact that you split the book into myths, but we'll come back to that, but into behaviours and enablers. So there are seven behaviours and five enablers, which are really simply explained because they're complex subjects. Can you walk us through how you got to that? How did you get to, I feel like saying only seven behaviours and only five enablers for the whole of the human experience? Yeah, it's, 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 I think, quite an interesting story in itself, actually, because in, in some respects, it was kind of completely by accident. You know, I've been, I started writing my blog in 2014 mm. and suddenly realized I really enjoyed writing. And, yeah. and I write, I write stories, you know, I write stories about customer experiences and things that have made me laugh, things that made me smile, things that made me think. And it got to around 2020. And actually, a guy that is a bit of a mentor for me, he left a post it on my desk at work. And the post-it said, you are ready to write a book. And I promised him I wouldn't take the post-it off my desk until <laughs> I'd written the book. And so there it, there it stayed. And so I was in the shower one day, as you often are with these things, and mm. I kind of got this word human. I was like, oh, human, maybe that's the thing. That's the thing that connects together all these stories. And, and as soon as I'd had that thought, I was like, well, that's it. I'm going to go and write a book. And I can, I can write the book now. I've got the really? connection yeah. of all these different stories together. But what happened was I thought, well, I'll do this quite easily. I'll just yeah. gather together all the stories that I've already written and I'll yeah. broadly put them under this theme and I'll order them around and then that'll be a book and it'll be done. I'll have it done in a couple And it'll months. be called Human, the Human Book. And it'll be called Human. <laughs> I said, it's going to be called, I'm going to call it Human. And this is what happened. So I wrote, I wrote a version of that and I called it Human. I went to a publisher and the publisher said, I really like it, but you need a bit more in there about what's really going on in companies at the moment. And also you can't really call it Human. Because that's a little bit, that's a little bit broad, a little bit wide, yeah, a little bit wide, and you know, you might be, you might be a good writer, but talking about the whole of humanity is quite something big. <laughs> so I, um, I found these kind of eight or nine companies that I think actually are brilliant at doing this, and I thought, mm-hmm. well, I'll go and interview them. So I was lucky enough to get interviews with CEOs and CMOs of these organisations, and I started interviewing them. This is during COVID, so it's all yeah. on Zoom, and I kept this post-it on the side of my desk, and as I was going through these interviews, I was just casually jotting down on this post-it all the things that these people seemed to have in common. Mm. And after about the sixth interview, I remember stopping and looking at that post-it and thinking, ah, oh, damn it, that, that's a much better book. Like, that's the book right there. Mm. Because all of these CEOs and CMOs were, were describing the same ways of working, the same ways of working in their culture, in the organisation that enabled them to deliver a human yeah. experience mm. and they also talked about the same behaviors as they were you know, not in exactly the same words but as they were describing the way they tried to act for customers they were describing the same kind of behaviors mm. so those behaviors enablers ended up coming out quite naturally from the conversation and then i realized the other stories could kind of fit in and support that so yeah. the book i ended up writing was very different to the one that i started out with and the bit that people uh, seemed to enjoy the most weren't in the first version so i've learned a lot there about the slow hunch, taking time, connecting dots, getting more parts on the table, as Stephen Johnson describes it, using that to guide it rather than being very rigid in what you're trying to write. Mm, And I'm also hearing like listening to the stories. So, you know, having a look at them, looking at the thread of what they're all saying, is there commonality there? Is there difference? What does it mean? 
Exactly right. And I think seeing them from different perspectives. Yeah. Because yeah. you might have, actually, to your point about your everyone you've ever met, which I hold really quite dear as a, as a principle, everyone looks at things from different perspectives. Absolutely. So you you have an experience and you see that experience from one perspective. But there's multiple other perspectives to see that from. And actually, I think that's ex- exactly right. Because when you start to look at these things from different perspectives, you start mm. to see, actually, they mean different things or they can tell you different things or you can learn different things from them. So, yeah, exactly. That kind of stepping back, re-looking at what I'd already written, re-looking at the stories and the experiences I've had, but from another angle, starts to show a whole new array of lessons you can learn from it that I was just blind to before because I was mm. just getting the story out and trying to get the book out. <laughs> Yeah, so you're sort of trying to figure it out. So when you actually sit with it and stop trying to figure it out, you actually get to the essence of of what you're trying to say. I think that's that is, that's a valuable learning that I'm hearing from you. Exactly right. It's so hard to sit and think and just come up with an idea. You know, yeah. I'm a big advocate of, you know, going in the shower, going for a long walk. When you stop thinking about things, that's when those ideas come. You have to let your brain do its natural connections and that natural kind of processing and we're all so busy in organizations now every organization i work with is so busy everyone's yeah. in back-to-back meetings all these back to sorry there's a, a big motorbike just gone past the other <laughs> all these all these back-to-back meetings that we're in trying to be productive trying to be efficient but it cuts away any actual thinking time any reflection time any processing mm. time mm. and if you look through history and again as i say stephen johnson talked about this brilliantly in his book how we got to now he talked about the slow hunch. Yeah. Nearly all the big ideas, nearly all the big ideas from history have taken time and come from not thinking about it and then mm. connecting other ideas, sometimes consciously, mm. sometimes not. So you're exactly right to call that. It's a really huge part of the experience mm. of writing the book. And we don't do, in inverted commas, do slow, do we? You know, it's all about mm. busy. It's all about how much you can get done. It's all about, you know, being more effective with less cost etc yeah. etc et which isn't the human experience is it it's it's just it, humans working towards an outcome but not yeah. the human experience and what i like about the behaviors and enablers in your book is various things but one of them is that it's actually defining what has become a buzzword experience is a buzzword customer experience employee experience user experience. and human is not a buzzword but as we've already said humanity is so broad that that you have to find some way to frame what you're going to talk about and how. And I like the fact yeah. that you distill it down into the three key points of this behavior are, or the three key points of this enabler are. And so I think that's really helpful to look at, okay, because you've basically saved us your process. So we can read yeah. it and then think, ah, oh, okay. So the three points I should be looking for if I really need to focus and I'm time hungry, which we all are, is that. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. So one of the things I say early in the book is that uh, organizations are now full of humans that aren't allowed to act in a human way yeah and and I, the reason i think that's so important is because when we're all so busy and mm. we end up being functional and when we talk about being human there's this kind of belief in organizations that we've well, got to go and teach people how to be empathetic you know how do we do an empathy how do we do an empathy <laughs> training program how do we do a program that allows people to be more human mm. we all know how to be human when you're in the pub or a restaurant with your friends and they tell you bad news you don't have to think about how to react. You, mm. you just know how to react. Most of us are lucky enough that we've been, we, we just know naturally how to react in those social mm. situations. But what happens in organizations is all these barriers get in the way that stops people acting in their natural human way. So, you know, it becomes a bit of a fallacy because if you become more productive and functional, mm. you actually make things a bit worse and then things take a little bit longer overall. And it's worse for customers. They get a less human experience. It's worse for colleagues because they don't get to act like mm. a human but rather than teaching people how to do it you just need to 
get a whole load of stuff out of the way. Unwind some of your policies, unwind your procedures. It's the best companies I interviewed, they have great empowerment, real freedom with their people mm. to just be the humans they naturally are. Mm. And that allows them to create this great human experience without big draconian training programs or policies around it. Yeah, which sometimes are just box ticking exercises, because even if I do understand that training program, it doesn't mean that then I have the time or the permission. And that's important when I go back to work to actually do something with what I've learned. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. important if I come back to storytelling, I mean, your your whole book is full of stories and anecdotes and, and case studies around the human experience, but also the customer experience. Can you tell us your favorite anecdote, the one that you still really remember about where you got a light bulb about the human experience from a customer perspective? Yeah, I've got I've got two stories. I, I'm going to tell the one that uh, I think highlights it. It's not a great experience, but I think highlights the problems. And then maybe later I'll tell you the yeah. one which is <laughs> the really the really good example. Yeah. I, I, mo- I moved house about four years ago. And I decided I wanted one of those really big, comfortable reading chairs. Mm. Uh, I'd obviously temporarily forgotten I had two children, so the chance yeah. of sitting. <laughs> so you'd sitting never get time it, to sit. <laughs> you know, wasn't going to happen anyway. But anyway, I was I was full of hope. And uh, I went to one of the big uh, retail stores in the UK, and I was in luck when I got there. They had a X display furniture sale on that day. Everything half price. I went in and I saw this big yellow chair, really big, really comfortable, really perfect. And it was half price, so I thought, right, I'm going to have that. The only problem was I'd driven there with my son and my wife, small car, full of kids' rubbish, yes. not a lot of room to get a chair in. So I, I said to the guy, I said, look, can I, can I buy the chair and get it delivered? Mm. And he said, no, look, we, we can't. You have to take it home. It's ex-display furniture. You can't do delivery ah. on ex-display furniture. Okay. <laughs> so I thought about it. I thought, no, I do really want it. So let's try and buy it and work out a way to do it. So I went over to him and I said, okay, can I take the chair outside, try and fit it in the car because it's in there mm. the car's in their car park just outside can i take the car outside try and get it in the car if i can i'll buy it if i can't i'll just bring it back in mm. he goes upstairs asks his manager comes back down no you, know, you can only take it off the premises when you bought it okay so I, had a, so I went back to him i said okay can i buy the chair take it out try and fit it in the car if not if it won't fit bring it back in get a refund and he went upstairs asked his manager comes back down no you can only uh, take it off the premises if you've bought it and there's no refunds on X-Display furniture. Okay? So I think, yeah. okay, well, can I, can I buy the chair and leave it here for an hour while I drive my family home, empty out the car, come back and pick it up? Goes upstairs, asks his manager, comes back down. No, you have to take the chair immediately when you've bought it. And by now I'm in one of those, like, yeah. ticking bag of grain, fox, boat across a river puzzles. There's an answer <laughs> in there somewhere and I can't work it out. And so eventually I say, okay, look, I'm just going to, I'm just going to buy it and take a risk and try and get it in because it's a really good value. And so I go and speak to the guy again and he's like 21 and muscly, like everything I'm not. And I say to him, look, can you at least help me carry it out to the car? And he says, yeah, no problem at all. But I'm only insured to carry it as far as the door. No. I'll have to stop there (laughs) because after that it's your property. And so true to his word, he carries the chair right to the door, puts it down. Him and his mm-hmm. colleagues stand and watch while me and my wife, who's four foot ten, try and carry this big chair five meters across the car park while my son's running around. Oh no! And so it's not a great experience. No, clearly. But it is a really interesting example because everyone you know, as I'm talking to you, your listeners will know that's a ridiculous scenario. We all know the common sense yeah. approach. We all know the human experience. You don't need to be taught what the right thing to do yeah. there is. But this restriction of policy, this fear of getting it wrong. 
it's so obvious they've got such a lack of empowerment and a lack of freedom. And I think it's a great example of where what could have been a great experience, me buying a really nice chair at half price and telling everyone how great it was and how great the experience was, ends up with this kind of hour-long process of back and forth and real resent coming in, mm. all because he's stuck so rigidly to all these rules rather than just being a bit human and just going, yeah, we'll just leave it in the corner for you for an hour, come back and pick it up. Or, yeah, I can just help you carry it a little bit further. That's fine. What's mm. the worst that's going to happen? Mm. And I think it really brings to life the challenge that we've got and therefore what that lack of humanity looks like at the moment. And particularly there on both sides, it's a, it's not a good experience for either you as a customer or him as somebody serving the customer, because clearly he's probably uncomfortable watching you struggle across the car park with, with your wife and child running around when he could have physically just taken it over with you. Well, there's two parts to it. So there's a human part, which for him, it probably wasn't a good experience. No, no. But there's a, there's a commercial part, yeah. which is what a waste of time. What a waste of time. They could have, you know, within two minutes, sold me a chair, left it on the side. I would have disappeared for an hour, come back and picked it up. Instead, he's had to spend probably in total about 20 minutes with me, going back up and down to his manager, answering my questions, going back and forth, other customers watching while this is playing out. You know, and what you'll find hopefully in the book is so many of the examples that I give of the good organizations, Mm. the stuff that they do is great for customers, but it's great for the business too. Yeah. It saves the business time. You know, bad customer experience is expensive to provide. Yeah. It saves the business time, makes them more efficient. And so mm. all in, it's a, bad, it's a bad experience for everyone that's involved in that, including the organisation. Yeah, it's reminded me of flexibility, perspective and other behaviours and enablers that uh, that you talk about in your book. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. You know, that, that, that you're exactly right. That, that, that The flexibility and proactivity definitely in terms of the behaviours. And the, one of the big five enablers about empowerment and how do you empower yeah. and give your staff the freedom to do the things that are right. I wonder, I, just as you're talking and recounting that, I do wonder what would have happened if he'd have stepped out of the disempowerment that that, that system meant for him and, and stepped into an empowerment. I wonder, it would have been great yeah. for you and for the customer image. It might not have been great for his job, though, if I come back to how things are rewarded or, or seen in organisations. And I think that's the big question about culture, really. So when I spoke to Adam, so one of the companies I study is Chiltern Railways, one of the train companies in the UK. Adam Riley was their customer director and they had a policy. He said he would would meet every person that would come to work with them. He'd meet them in the first week. And he'd always say to them, if in doubt, you do the right thing for the customer. And if you get something wrong, but you were trying to do the right thing for the customer, that's okay. We'll talk about it afterwards. We'll help you understand why it maybe wasn't quite right just so you know for next time. But you will never get in trouble for doing what you think was the right thing for the customer. And I think that's such a powerful message to have your senior managers tell you in day one. Because you're right, in that situation, Mm. if he had carried it outside and he dropped it and they were liable, they might kind of, there are rules and procedures for a reason. Mm. But clearly you'd look at that and go, I get what you were doing. You're trying to do the right thing. Let's just explain why that might not be the right thing next time. And it is that real balance, that tightrope rule that needs to be Mm. found between being able to build a scalable organisation that needs policies and procedures, but not doing it in such a way that takes away all the humanity and ultimately commoditizes your own business. Yeah, it does. And ultimately, as we said before, it's common sense, isn't it? I mean, if, if you yeah. didn't have any of those structures, you'd be like, oh, yeah, of course, I'll help you take it to the car, which is interesting because it brings me to, you know, we've, we've discussed like the inside out process of standing in the shower or going for a walk or letting, you know, letting yourself, giving yourself time to be as opposed to just doing, doing, doing so that you can have these these thoughts and this sort of more creative thinking. But you talk a lot about customer experience being an outside in process. 
And so this is a great segue into that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the outside in process and why it's so helpful, but also why it's so few companies use it today? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, so, so it, it, it's hard. It's a, a human bias that we've yeah. all got inbuilt within us, that we all see the world from the inside out. We can't help it. Mm. We're all closer to our own background, mm. our own culture. Of course. We're closer to the world that's around us, the friends and family that surround us. You know, yeah. it's, this has more commonly been known in the last few years as the kind of echo chamber yeah. that we all live in and we can't yeah. escape it. Yeah, it's my it's bubble, isn't it? We all it's live in bubble. our bubbles, yeah. Yeah, and and you can't escape the bubble, but the best thing you can do is be aware of the bubble yeah. and then try and get yourself out of this. And this is the way organisations work. You mm. know, organisations are closer to their own business, to their own colleagues, to their own industry, to their own regulator. Mm. That's what dominates their time. That's what mm. they spend most of the mm. time talking about. And they're closer to that than they ever can be to their customers and what really matters to their customers. And so we call that inside-out thinking. But mm. the best organisations... They try and see the world from the outside in. They're aware of this bias and they continually do things that help them. We, we sometimes describe it as escaping gravity. You know, if you imagine the business <laughs> yeah. of the planet, you need to be able to escape the gravity that pulls you in and see the world from the outside in. So they continually do things that mm. give them a bit of rocket fuel to get out and escape that gravity. The gravity will always pull you back in and yeah. the bigger the organization, like yeah. the bigger the planet the stronger the gravity and the yeah. harder you need to work mm. because there's even more layers between mm. you at the centre as a leader and your mm. customers. Sorry, the gravity is the status quo, isn't it? It's just pulling you back into the status quo. Exactly right. And you won't get in trouble for acting in that way No, because that's how organisations work. So yeah. no one in a business is going to kind of ever tell you off for being knowledgeable about your business or the industry or the regulator mm. because that's what's expected of you. But plenty of people in organisations are quite happy to not be close to their customer because they might say, well, that's someone else's job. That's the customer experience team. That's the insight team's job. Maybe the senior leader should do that because it's not the natural thing. You have to work hard to stay close to your mm. customers. And that's what makes that even harder is that actually we believe we are close to customers because we think, <laughs> well, I'm a human. We think I'm a human and I know what I like. So therefore, I know what all customers like. And we put our own perspective onto that of our mm. customers, even though actually customers live in very different scenarios from a lot of the senior managers or the people that are making mm. decisions. And that's the principle. Try and see the world from the outside and try and escape that gravity as much as possible. But be aware it's a bias that will always pull you back in and it's not a one-stop shop. You can't just do one thing and be done. You have to continually keep getting out mm. to find these broader perspectives and connect with your customers. Mm. It's our comfort zone, isn't it, though? You know, confirmation bias is one thing, but when we're stressed and tired, we're going to go to what we know and then we're going to convince ourselves that we know what they're thinking, what they want, what they need without asking, which, you know, and you yeah. can have, can't you, a map, a journey map on the wall. You can have the customer experience map. You can have the user journey and say, okay, we've got it. But if you yeah. never actually intentionally and i'm hearing i'm hearing that the intentional the intentionality of going out and getting curious about the outside in process then i mean ultimately today given the way the markets are moving so quickly and given the way you know the sort of the gig economy is developing it's it's essentially about competitive advantage isn't it this intentional outside in process yeah exa exactly right and i think the point you've made is really interesting as well because this is a lot easier for some people than other people. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a reason. There's a reason yeah. a lot of senior managers like to be senior managers because they're the kind of people that like to work in an office. They maybe want to work in that scenario where they own something. If you work in finance, you might have a very particular reason for working in finance. There's a reason some people work frontline mm. and run restaurants because yeah. they love hanging out with people. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
it's not necessarily a natural thing to do either. And we do this a lot in our work. We get senior leaders to go and meet customers firsthand in their houses, yeah. you know, go shopping with them. And a lot of them are very uncomfortable with it. And mm. I, I feel sorry for them with that because they've maybe chosen a career path, which is deliberate because they don't like meeting random people. I happen yeah. to really like that. And that's why I do what I do. And I like, <laughs> going to, I like going to interview people I've never met in their houses. It's yeah. slightly concerning, probably. Um, <laughs> so, so you do need to work on it. But, but the reason it really matters to your point, actually, Susie, is that there's so much customer information coming into yeah. the organization yeah. at the moment. I talk about this as the myth of feedback. But all of that information is presented on PowerPoints and PDFs. And the problem with that is what happens more often than not is leaders will rather challenge the methodology than accept the inconvenient truth. If they see something on a PowerPoint slide they yeah. don't like, they say, well, is that exactly the right customers? How many people did you do that? Did you ask them the right questions? Yeah. Whereas if you hear that directly from customers, you get a visceral connection, a visceral emotional connection. Yeah. And yeah. even if you don't like what you hear, you can't yeah. deny it's true. No. It's true for that person. Yes. And you carry that with you. And that's yeah. that's what needs to happen, not just more information, not just more PowerPoints and PDFs. Mm. Mm. Actually, being there with them is the only way you really get that vis- mm. visceral type mm. of empathy that mm. allows you to then really build around that. And and I do want to come, it's a great segue into the myths, and I do want to come to the myths, but before we go there, before the show, you did share with me a really interesting anecdote that still stays with me around some senior manager doing that, actually going shopping with one of his elderly clients. I would love you to just walk our listeners through that, because I think not only does it sort of summarize this point very well but it's also just as a lived experience incredibly powerful i think yeah we we did a a a project a few years ago with one of the major supermarkets in Mm. the uk we got their senior team to go shopping with uh real customers and we got their ceo to go shopping with an 80 year old widow uh, in a store up in the north in the north of england Uh, and they just refurbished this store that they were walking around and they were really proud of it the 80-year-old widow uh, spent about two hours walking with the CEO around the store, telling him absolutely everything that she hated about it. You know, the fish counter was too high. She couldn't see the deli bit anymore. The cream cakes have moved. Every little thing. Now, of course, that's not statistically significant. And they might still have made some of those decisions yes. anyway on balance. Yeah. But that CEO was left in no doubt after that two hours, that real visceral connection, whether he liked it or not, whether it was inconvenient or not, everything he heard was true. For that lady and that's where you kind of take it off the off the journey map you take it off the design and you put it into reality yeah. and you see what real people are really thinking about it and it was so impactful and then that person stayed with him for the next four or five years as he was building that organization onto great things he'd keep thinking about well, what would she say what would she yeah. say about that it was such an impactful experience. Yeah, and I well, I still remember it word for word. Um, but but I've, it also got me thinking since you know our first conversations around the three myths on because mm-hmm. it touches them all, doesn't it? It touches customer loyalty. Yeah. So you know what's useful customer feedback is it genuine understanding and mm-hmm. then the return on investment. So I've got two yeah. questions around the myths. One, could you sort of pad them out a little bit for us? Because I, I you know the more I think about it, the more I think, yeah that. That's very simple touch points to maybe you don't want to hear it, but that's what moves the needle in terms mm. of these three subjects that we've defined in a PowerPoint way. So I'd be really interested in defining it in a non-PowerPoint way, which is exactly what you do. And then I'll come on to my other question. Let's yeah. start there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. So the three myths. So yeah, the myth of customer feedback, the myth of loyalty, and the myth of return on investment. And these are the three things I think get in the way of organization, being yeah. human organization. Yeah. 
The myth of feedback is simply that we live in this epidemic of feedback surveys. We can't have any interaction with an organization now without being asked what we thought about it and would we recommend it. And it's creating this, yeah, yeah, creating this onslaught of data exactly into organizations. But the reason it's a bit of a myth is because it convinces senior leaders that they're close to what matters to customers, whereas actually they're only really close to customers' opinions of their service. And even then, it's the opinions of people that have bothered to fill out the survey. So mm. that creates this false sense of security in terms yeah. of knowing what matters to customers when they don't. Now, that leads into the second myth, the myth of loyalty. And this is the one, since the book's come out, that I've had the most heat on. I've had the yes. most emails yeah. about. People don't like being told they're not loyal and people don't like being told <laughs> their customers aren't loyal, it turns out. <laughs> but really, I don't think loyalty exists. I think it's far more about usefulness. You can think of any company that you would say you're loyal to. But if they tripled the price overnight and the quality halved, you probably still wouldn't go there. Mm. Sometimes you might. And you might if you felt an emotional connection whereby that brand and that organization represented something about you. But Mm. even then, if overnight that brand had some kind of scandal or they changed one of their policies, again, they would stop being useful in a social Mm. psychological way. Mm. So what you really need to talk about is usefulness rather than loyalty. And customers will stay with you as long as you stay more useful than the alternatives. Now, again, this is dangerous because if senior leaders believe that customers are loyal, they stop trying. They stop putting in effort. They think, well, we'll focus on onboarding. We'll focus on getting customers in. And then as soon as they're in, we'll kind of give up and we'll just let them kind of stay with us because we believe they're going to stay with us Mm because we give them some points on a card. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because it's quantitative, again, not qualitative. And, And that's the point I found with all your myths. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And that's mm. right with the third one as well, return on investment. You know, there's this this focus on, um, you know, you have to if you want to make an improvement, if you want to make something better for customers, you've got to prove to us how it's going to make money. You've yeah. got to prove you've got yeah. to prove it's going to kind of add revenue, whereas bad customer experience is really expensive to provide. You know, <laughs> if you give bad service, it often creates failure demand. You know, yes. It costs a lot more yeah. interaction than you'd otherwise need. It, it causes mm. customers to leave. You know, you're mm. better to look at the cost of inaction, of not doing anything. And so actually the ROI should be, well, if you make something better for customers, it will create you a more efficient business and it will mean more of your customers stay. And it will mean more of your customers genuinely recommend you, not just theoretically recommend mm. you when you ask them the <laughs> survey. So, so you're right, they're all connected by this kind of, vast swathe of data that kind of comes in and convinces leaders of one thing Mm. but what what it convinces them to believe in being close to customers that customers are loyal that customer experience Mm. has to make you money is really dangerous and actually then leads to bad decisions being made it's it's a it's a hard ask though isn't it because it does data gives us so much insight we've got so much data and it gives us so much insight into behaviors as well now but if i look at the roi you know the the biggest question i ever get is tell me the roi of coaching tell me the roi of culture Mm. change what you do things like but the age-old hr debate on measuring absenteeism when really i think presenteeism costs a lot more to organize and that's exactly what you're saying is that maybe they're measuring the wrong thing and therefore they're believing something that that is not founded and is actually quite expensive for the organization to believe it's exactly that. I mean, it's yeah. far easier. I'm aware very much what I'm saying. It's far easier to run an organization with all this data because yeah. that gives com- it gives comfort, yeah. it gives certainty, helps you run your job. If you're a senior manager, I look yeah. at these figures and we yeah. manage around that. So you do need people that are prepared to be really pioneering to make fundamental changes. And something like average call waiting time is a perfect example. Yeah. So many contact centers around the world still measure call waiting time or call time, actually, actual average call time as the fundamental measure. 
it's just a fallacy because all that happens is everyone gets rushed off the phones and then they all phone back. I worked with one company and 30% of the calls they had coming into their contact center were repeat phone calls from people that had phoned up earlier and weren't happy with the answer they'd been given. Yeah. And it just comes back in rather than appropriate call waiting time, yeah. you know, and this kind of, you know, okay, what's appropriate for that conversation you were in or first contact resolution. You know, mm-hmm. there's other methods available you can use that give a far better uh, customer experience and make it a more efficient business. We're back to sort of different perspectives again, aren't we? Because, you know, if you get curious, if you come from a place of curiosity and back to, you know, your son saying, is it like this going to London? Is this like the train to London? It's that though, yeah. isn't it? It's that lens of, okay, so is that the right thing? And if it's not, what is? Not if it's not who got it wrong, but if it's not, then what is? Yeah, I did once try and get an organisation to change their reporting on their on their waiting times to being um, numbers of human lives wasted in a year. <gasps> Uh, okay. So if you added, if you added up mm. all the time that people had spent on hold to the company yeah. and converted it into days, weeks, mm. months, years, how many human lives had been spent on hold to that company waiting to be answered just to try and really hammer home the point? They nearly went for it. They nearly did it. And then they backed out the last minute. And I thought that would have been quite, maybe an extreme, but quite an interesting way of really bringing to life the emotional and human impact yes. you're having on people. Yeah, but it's it's flipping the paradigm, isn't it? I mean, you could you could make a parallel of that in decision making in organisations. If you take the amount of time that's spent around the table and how much it costs the organisation in terms of the people around the table and their hourly costs and and what decisions get made, you know, yeah, that's a scary yeah. metric, but it's it's quite a good metric in terms of you know what value is being created and what impact is being had on the organisation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And like you say earlier on, it's it's about breaking away from the status quo. And mm. you need, uh, you know, very inspirational people to do that, very pioneering people. You need visceral connection and you need real conviction to be able mm. to kind of go and do that because the easiest mm. thing is just to stick with what we've already mm. got. But I get the sense that increasingly people are getting fed up with giving really bad customer, with getting really bad customer service. And mm. that might help to build up this groundswell of support to actually make some fundamental changes. Mm. Just So just on that note, and time is running, but I do have a couple more questions. What is there for your vision? If I take you out sort of to 2025, what's your vision for the human experience in, in organ, or should I say the customer experience in a more human-centered way? Yeah, it, it's, it's such an interesting question. And I, I probably, at the risk of sounding slightly too worthy, and it's not, it's not meant to be like that, I do talk very slightly in the book about my big concern with mm. this is that there's a bit of wealth inequality here. Yeah. Because if you're wealthy enough uh, or you've got a good enough network, actually you can still get a great human experience. You can get personal managers. You can mm. uh, pay to have the better versions of all yep. the services that are available. Yep. Yep. And if something goes wrong, you probably know the people to help sort it out. Or you've got the confidence to be able to write the right letter that's going to go to the CEO that's going to sort it out. But there's vast swathes of the population in every country that don't have that wealth to pay for the best service, that don't mm. have maybe the network or even the education or even the time mm. to be able to write letters to the CEOs or to know what they should do and just kind of have to put up with it and have to put up with this bad service now octopus energy at the moment in the uk yeah they've got a really interesting advertising banner which is in a crisis service matters and i really like that yeah. because they and a few other companies are really starting to focus on how do we give great service to the people that can't afford just to pay for it yeah to the people that can't afford you know don't have the time just to be able to deal with it all themselves so i suppose my vision in a very unclear way would be more around that actually, which is how do we start to save a lot of people at, in parts of society? How do we how do we save them time and how do we save them stress? 
so they can enjoy as much of their life as possible mm. rather than having to you know spend 45 minutes on hold to a company and everyone just accepting that that's just the way it is and that's just okay because it's, it's really not so mm. I think it's a bit around that really which I really like. And also, if I take it back to the sort of inequities, there's wealth inequity, but there's lots of other inequities in today's Definitely. society. And it's just like through the human experience, can we democratize access yeah. to these services, these skills, to this understanding and, you know, make it available to everyone so that then we are on a human experience. Come back to your first definition of human, which was humanity and, and the society. I mean, I think, you know, yeah. well, like the more of us work on that, <laughs> the faster we'll get there is is my optimistic view on things absolutely right and it's again it's better for all you'd rather yeah. work for a company that does that you'd rather yeah. be a colleague in yeah, an organization that does that you know yeah. you'd rather not be someone that is on the end of a phone every day having people shout at you because they've been waiting for 45 minutes or exactly. it's not pleasant it's not pleasant for anyone so by getting this mm. right it makes it better for all mm. Mm. okay and i have to ask my last question is what is john the most transformative thing you've ever done and what did you learn from it such a good question. And I kind of went, I went around the houses on, on what it might be. I think uh, it, without it sounding like it's too closely tied to the book, I think it has to be deciding to start writing a blog back in 2014. So I was just about to leave HSBC. Mm. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do next, but mm. I had a, a slight thought that it might be something that was across other industries yeah. uh, and, and in a slightly different way. And, I, and I'd never been someone that had done a lot of writing. I wasn't great at school. I didn't do much at all in my 20s. So this was just around when I was 32. And I thought, do you know what? I, I feel like I've just got stuff in my head. Mm. I don't really care who reads it. I'm just going to start writing. So actually, mm. it was even less writing the blogs. It was just, I'm just <clears> going to start writing, help organize my thoughts, see what comes out. I decided to put it on the blog because I needed that as a commitment device. Yeah. That it needed yeah. to go somewhere. Otherwise, I wouldn't mm. do anything. And actually, so much of what I think I've managed to do since then has come from doing that. And that's mm. both in terms of career-wise, but just my own personal development, mm. being able to be very comfortable writing my thoughts, having that challenge of working out what I really mean, mm. knowing the stuff that's rubbish and the stuff that's good, and being able to start to sharpen this point of view. And that's led to where I am now with mm. the book. But as a transformative thing, I think just starting to have a regular practice of writing down my thoughts and working out what I really thought they meant, and then taking the step of, publishing in the outside world and seeing what people think is it's got to be the thing I think that's had the biggest fork in the road moment mm. in, in my career I think in the last 20 mm. years or so it's really inspiring to hear and it's really inspiring also to hear implicitly that we don't have to know it all and it doesn't matter if we don't really know what the outcome is going to be but to just sit with the process and, and see what emerges yeah and that's so important just just try it I'm a big fan of the team here of just saying you just got to try stuff and see what yeah. happens you yeah. know, if you don't if you don't try it, you definitely don't know. If you try it, well, at least you won't you know one way or the other. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and it's a similar thing. The more stuff you try, mm. then the more you see what bubbles to the top, what mm. works, what you like, what doesn't like, what other people like. Mm. But just going out there trying things, you don't have to know the answer. You don't have to start writing a book knowing how it ends. You don't have to start a blog knowing how it ends. Just the process of doing it helps you work it out, and it's that great principle of flow. By, uh, I think it's Mahaili, it's sent Mahaili, but I've probably yes. got that name slightly wrong. Oh, it is, but, really, but it's yeah. hard to pronounce, but it is him. <laughs> yeah, but it's brilliant, brilliant sense of flow of just getting the intrinsic value from mm. doing the thing in and of itself. Mm. And so that's what I get from writing. It's just it's such mm. a valuable thing to have learned. Mm. And if would that be your final call to action to our listeners if you had one? I think there would be two things. I think one one would be in more of a career sense mm. and a personal sense 
if in doubt, just go and try some stuff. Yeah. Just go and try some stuff and see what happens. The, the, the other call to action, I think, more specifically related to the human experience is if in doubt, be human. And I, I think that. that's true. I think that's true in any of your decisions that you might want to make, whether it's for yourself, for your company, yeah. for your customers. Yeah. If in doubt, if you do the human thing, you're probably more times than not, you're probably going to get it right. And actually, you won't regret it even if you do get it wrong. So mm. my call to action would be, yeah, if in doubt, be human. I'm going to leave our, our listeners with that, if in doubt, be human. John, thank you so much for coming and sharing your stories, your anecdotes, your research and what's in your book. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? Yeah, I'm pretty much everywhere you look online. So uh, <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on, uh, on LinkedIn, John J. Seals. I'm on Twitter, John J. Seals. I've got uh, an Instagram, which is CX Stories, which is all kind of mm-hmm. funny customer experience clips. And I've got a Substack, which is CX Stories. Okay. Uh, but more cool. often than, than not, you'll find me at the foundation and we're the foundation.com uh, based in. And I'm in King's Cross. If you want to literally physically come and find me, I'm in King's Cross in London. But yeah, if you, if you search John J. Seals, you'll find me in various places around the internet. Excellent. And I'll leave our London listeners with that idea of coming to actually have a coffee with you in King's Cross. Yeah, absolutely right. Okay, thank you, John. Thanks for a great conversation. Thanks, Lisa. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Likewise, thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the insights and learning it gave you. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Transformation.